Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Wow, it's me again. Uh, This is Shireen. This is also It Could Happen Here. We've been talking about Syria for the last few episodes, and we're going to continue. And I'm just going to jump right in because there's a lot. Okay, so this is a continuation about Syria and the terrible family that controls it, the Assads. As I mentioned in the previous episodes, uh, the Assads have destroyed Syria and the death toll that they are responsible for is literally incalculable by the UN, but it's said to be nearing half a million people, which is a lot of people. So... Sam Dagger is an American-Lebanese journalist and author who has lived and worked in the Middle East for more than 16 years. He was based in Damascus in the early years of the current war before the government kicked him out in 2014, but he used his access to write about the inside story of the Assad family. He has a book titled Assad or We Burn the Country, which I admittedly have not read. It's like 500 pages. But I did pull a lot of info from the book and interviews that he's done about it, mostly in regards to the economic stuff that we'll get into later. But it was a very helpful resource. When Dagger was in Syria, he saw this phrase, uh, Assad or we burn the country, which is the title of his book, all over the towns and neighborhoods that had been taken over by the regime, graffitied on walls, probably by loyalists or government militias or whatever. 
or his people that love him barf. And in this case, they're talking about Bashar al-Assad, who is the son of the person we were talking about previously, Hafiz al-Assad. But it essentially also includes the entire family. They are in power forever. And the Assad regime routinely takes over deserted, destroyed areas. And these government militias come in and loot the area until it's nothing but rubble, littered by things that are left behind as people are fleeing and things that these loyalists find useless, like teddy bears and personal items that actually tell a really devastating story about the lives that used to occupy that space. Because these loyalists, these Assad-obsessed freaks, they take everything that they deem worth looting, even things like tiles and doors. So you're left with these ghost towns, literally, figuratively. The phrase Assad or Reber in the country means exactly what it says it means, that Bashar al-Assad and his family will remain in power or else they will burn the country to the ground and burn everyone who opposes the Assad regime along with it. And although Bashar al-Assad has now been in power for 22 years, he was actually never meant to be in power. His father, Hafiz al-Assad, appointed himself as president in 1971 after overthrowing the prior government through a military coup. Bashar al-Assad succeeded his father in 2000 after his father's death, and it continued their family's hold on Syria and its people. 1990 was a very significant year. Not only was it the year I was born, and that's why, but also the Soviet Union collapsed and the Berlin Wall fell and dictatorships were crumbling. The Soviet Union was seen as the main supporter or guardian of the Assad regime, but in 1990, it didn't exist anymore. So the Assad regime was suddenly in trouble. Its priority was to present an image of reform and repackage itself so Hafiz al-Assad could hand down the power to his eldest son, Basil al-Assad. And Basil was an army officer who was essentially brought up to eventually fill this role, taking over for his father. And his military background fit the image of this traditional leader of the Arab world because so many of these leaders took over by military coup or had a background in military. But before we get into all of that, let's go back in time a little bit and talk about what went down. So a sort of succession crisis was triggered in November of 1983 when Hafez al-Assad, a diabetic, had a heart attack. On November 13th, after visiting his brother in a hospital, Rafat al-Assad reportedly announced his candidacy for president. He did not believe that his brother would be able to continue ruling the country after this. When he did not receive support from Assad's inner circle, he made lavish promises to win them over. But apparently some believe that Rafat had been Hafez al-Assad's first choice of successor, and it was an idea that some people say he broached as early as 1980. Rafat al-Assad was the younger brother of Hafez, and he served as vice president. Many believe him to be the commanding officer responsible for the Hama massacre of 1982. Um, I briefly mentioned this in the previous episode at the end. It was a horrific massacre, and I think it especially is near to me because Hama is my mother's hometown, and it's probably my favorite place in the world. They have these water wheels that are like I don't know, they mesmerize me. But that's another story entirely. We can be all sappy at another time. But I did want to bring up this massacre because most people have no idea that it even happened. In February 1982, as commander of the defense companies, Rafat allegedly commanded the forces that put down a Muslim Brotherhood revolt in the central city of Hama. 
by instructing his forces to shell the city with rockets, and this killed thousands of its inhabitants. Reports range from between 5,000 and 40,000, but the most common suggestion is around 15 to 20,000. Still a shit ton of people. And this became known as the Hama Massacre. A declassified document from the Defense Intelligence Agency estimates the total number of casualties to be approximately 2,000. However, U.S. journalist Thomas Friedman claims in his book uh, From Beirut to Jerusalem that Rifat later said the total number of victims was 38,000 people. 38,000 people. Rifat also played a key role in his brother Hafez's overthrow of Saad Shadid and uh, the seizure of power in 1970. This change in executive power is dubbed by some loyalists as the Corrective Revolution. Rifat was allowed to form his own paramilitary group, the Defense Companies, in 1971, and this soon transformed into a powerful and regular military force trained and armed by the Soviet Union. He was a qualified paratrooper, and he ran the elite internal security forces and the defense companies in the 70s and early 80s. But things changed when Hafez suffered a heart attack in late 83. As he was recovering, Hafez established a six-member committee to run the country, but Rafat was not included. The council consisted entirely of close Sunni Muslim loyalists to Hafez, who were mostly lightweights in the military security establishment. This caused unease in the Alawi-dominated officer corps, and several high-ranking officers began rallying behind Rafat, while others remained loyal to Hafez's instructions. In March of 84, Rafat's troops, now numbering more than 55,000 with tanks and artillery, aircraft, and helicopters, they began asserting control over Damascus. A squadron of Rafat's tanks took position at the central roundabout of Kafr Suse in Mount Qasiyun, overlooking the city, setting up checkpoints and roadblocks, putting up posters of him in state buildings, disarming regular troops, and arbitrarily arresting soldiers of the regular army, occupying and commandeering police stations and intelligence buildings, occupying state buildings. The defense companies rapidly outnumbered and took control over both the special forces and the Republican Guard. Although Damascus was divided between two armies and seemed to be on the brink of war, Rafat did not move. Hafez was then informed that Rafat was heading to Damascus, and he left his headquarters to meet his brother. British journalist Patrick Seal reports an intimate moment between these two brothers. He writes, At Rafat's home in Meze, the brothers were at last face to face. You want to overthrow the regime? Hafez asked. Here I am. I am the regime. For an hour, they stormed at each other. But in his role of elder brother and with his mother in the house, Hafiz could not fail to win the contest. Deferring to him at last, as he had so often during their youths, Rafat chose to accept, although with some inward skepticism, Hafiz's pledge that the trust between them would be restored and would be the basis of their future work together. There was a clear division and tensions between forces loyal to Hafiz, namely the 3rd Armored Division, the Republican Guard, the various intelligence services, the National Police, and the Special Forces. The defense companies were so loyal to Rafat. In the middle of 84, Hafez had returned from his sickbed and assumed full control, at which point most officers rallied around him. At first, it seemed like Rafat was going to be put on trial. He even faced a questioning that was broadcast on television. However, it is believed that Hafez's daughter Bushra actually saved her uncle by convincing her father 
that it would disgrace the family. It might cause tensions not only within the Assad family, but within the Makhlouf family as well. Both Hafiz and Rafat had married women from the Makhlouf family, and they also just happened to be the second most prevalent Alawite family, dominating the leadership of the security services behind the Assads. In what first seemed like a compromise, Rafat was made vice president with responsibility for security affairs, but this proved to be simply a fancy title and post. Command of the defense companies was trimmed down to an armored division size and was transferred to another officer, and the entire unit was ultimately disbanded and absorbed into other units. Rafat was then sent to the Soviet Union in an open-ending working visit. His closest supporters and others who had failed to prove their loyalty to Hafez were purged from the army and bath party in the years that followed. Upon his departure, Rafat acquired $300 million of public money, including $100 million Libyan money uh, on a loan. In 2015, he claimed that the money was a gift from Crown Prince Abdullah of Saudi Arabia. And although Rafat returned to Syria for his mother's funeral in 1992 and for some time lived in Syria, he was thereafter confined to exile in France and Spain. He nominally retained the post of vice president until February of 1988, at which point he was stripped of this title. He had retained a large business empire, both in Syria and abroad, partly through his son Sumer. However, the 1999 crackdown involving armed clashes in Latakia destroyed much of his remaining network in Syria. Large numbers of Rafat's supporters were arrested. This was seen as tied to the issue of succession, with Rafat having begun to position himself to succeed the ailing Hafez, who in his turn sought to eliminate all potential competition for his designated successor, his son Bashar al-Assad. In France, Rafat, who is still alive, has loudly protested against the succession of Bashar to the post of president, claiming that he himself embodies the only constitutional legality as previous vice president, alleging his dismissal as unconstitutional. He has made threatening remarks about planning to return to Syria at a time of his choosing to assume his responsibilities and fulfill the will of the people, and that while he will rule benevolently and democratically, he will do so with the power of the people and the army behind him. Anyway, Rafat's coup attempt weakened the institutionalized power structure on which Hafez based his rule. Instead of changing his policy, Assad tried to protect his power by honing his governmental model. He then gave a larger role to Basid, his oldest son, who was subsequently rumored to be his father's planned successor at the time, and this kindled jealousy within the government. At a 1994 military meeting, the chief of staff said that since Assad wanted to normalize relations with Israel, the Syrian military had to withdraw its troops from the Golan Heights. Ali Haidad replied angrily, We have become non-entities. We were not even consulted. When he heard about his outburst, Assad replaced him as commander of special forces with the Alawite Major General Ali Habib. Haidar also reportedly opposed dynastic succession, keeping his views secret until after Basel's death in 94, and when Assad chose Bashar al-Assad to succeed him. He then openly criticized Assad's succession plans. Okay, before we go back to 1990, let's take a quick break. BRB. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so back to 1990. 
The regime had done everything in preparation for Basile to take power. However, on January 21st of 1994, while Basile was driving his Mercedes at a high speed, an author, uh, Paul Thoreau, reports that Basile was driving 150 miles per hour. He was driving through dense fog to Damascus International Airport for a flight to Frankfurt, Germany. He was on his way to a ski vacation in the Alps in the early hours of the morning. And it was then that Basile collided with a barrier and, not wearing a seatbelt, he died instantly. After his tragic death, the regime made sure to elevate the Assad name in the process. Shops, schools, and public offices in Syria closed, and the sale of alcohol was suspended in respect. He was elevated by the state into the martyr of the country, the martyr of the nation, and the symbol for its youth. A great number of squares and streets were named after him. The new international swimming complex, various hospitals, sporting clubs, and a military academy. The international airport in Latakia was named after him, Basel Assad International Airport. His statue was found in several Syrian cities, and even after his death, he's often pictured on billboards with his father and his brother. He also has an equestrian statue in Aleppo. Even in November of 2020, a museum dedicated to him was inaugurated at the Latakia Sports City. Basel's untimely death obviously had unforeseen consequences. It led to his lesser-known brother, Bashar, to assume the mantle of president-in-waiting. At the time, he was content undertaking postgraduate training in ophthalmology in London. Bashar was seen as the shy, unassuming younger brother, and for his whole life up to this point, he was overshadowed by his father and his older brother, Basil. But then, suddenly, he was fast-tracked on the path to succession. He was rushed to the military, and the constitution changed so that the minimum age required of the president was not 40, but 34, exactly Bashar's age at the time. Bashar became president following the death of his father, who died on June 10th of 2000. Bastille's posters and his name were also used to secure a smooth transition after Hafez al-Assad introduced the slogan, Basil the example, Bashar the future. His quote-unquote election was a yes or no referendum, a popular vote, uh, on whether the Syrian people wanted him as their president. And so surprise, he won with at least 97% of the vote. So after the vote, Bashar is sworn in, and he's presented to his people as the savior, as the one who's going to open up Syria and reform the system. Dr. Bashar, as some refer to him, was seen as the leader of the younger generation of Syria, the standard bearer of modernization. But the regime was and stayed very cynical and was not at all sincere about these reforms. However, Bashar performed his role and acted the part, cracking down on corruption and reaching out to all sectors of Syrian society. Back in 2000, some people were even calling this the Damascus Spring. And the Syrian people were seeing things change, unaware that, as Sam Dagger puts it, that Bashad is being mentored and tutored by people who have been empowered by his father to kill, torture, and disappear people because they had dared to speak out against the regime. These hardliners were grooming him and telling him, yes, you can present yourself as a softer version of your father, but know that in order to hang on to power, you have to be as ruthless as your father, if not more. Western governments had the impression that Bashad was someone they could do business with. He presented a modern, open-minded image and even hosted notable positions from around the world in Damascus, including Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. The US and Europe accepted this perception because they believed that it was in their best interest to do so, and to ensure that this image of Syrian leadership 
was being presented to the world, the regime was strategic, having Bashar show that he was different from his father, even in the choice of who he married. In December of 2000, Assad married Esma Akhras, a British citizen of Syrian origin from Acton, London. She was much different than Syria's previous first lady. She wasn't from the religious sect that the Assads belonged to, the Alawites, who are still a religious minority. Uh, she is actually of the Sunni majority. Bashar decided to marry someone who had lived all her life abroad as a British citizen, who was modern and assertive and had a career in investment banking and talked about going to Harvard for business school. She was even featured in Vogue. Come on. <sighs> Barf. In an interview in 2005, Esma said, quote, The issue here is not how Muslim women decide to dress. The issue is what Muslim women are doing in their society today. It doesn't matter how we dress or what we look like. So hearing this and other things, Western leaders are looking at this modern, educated couple, believing they are different, and more importantly, that they are more suitable to their interests. In the post-9-11 era, the United States was looking for allies in the so-called War on Terror. And Bashar al-Assad, as Sam Dagger stated in an interview, quote, shared intelligence with the Americans and even tortured people on behalf of the Americans. So the West had a vested interest to justify its engagement and cooperation with Bashar by saying he's a reformer. Opening up Syria's economy was a big part of projecting an image of a reformed Syria. Before Bashar took power, Syria's economy was a centrally planned economy also known as a command economy, which is an economic system where a government body makes economic decisions based on the production and distribution of goods. Syria's economy was in the mold of the Soviet Union's economy. But when Bashar took over, the economy began to change drastically. In the early 2000s, ATMs were seen in Syria for the very first time and cell phone companies were established. And while the economy may have opened up, everything was still in control of the regime. I wanted to bring up something that my mom mentioned about the differences between Bashar and Hafiz and how they genuinely believed he was going to bring modern change. He, he was doing it all right on paper. But when Hafiz was in power in the early 80s, or my mom was talking about her experience in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, apparently there were at least three secret service stations that monitored everyone in every neighborhood. Three per neighborhood. And because my mom was going back and forth from America to Syria, my father as well, they would send for my mom. They would request that she go to the Secret Service, and she was asked there about the Syrians she knew in the States, what they were doing, what they did, who went to the mosque. She had to write everything she did in detail. She did this every time she visited Syria, and my father went through the same thing. At one instant, she was saying that one time they left her alone in a room for three hours. Because they do this to purposely humiliate you. They make you anxious. They make you scared. And this was just something of normal procedure that a lot of Syrians experienced. Just constant terror. As I mentioned, it's a culture of fear. And this is one of the ways that they promoted that. But after Bashar took power, this changed. These places were taken down. And it just genuinely looked like Bashar was an improvement. He studied in the West, he opened up the internet, because previously the internet was only uh, allowed for news, and it just seemed promising. And before we get into anything further, let's take another break. BRB. Bean Dad, The Dress. 
30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
In Sam Dagger's book, Assad or Reburn the Country, he describes how tightly controlled this new Syrian economy is. He writes, 10 families run Syria and control everything. He continues to describe how this early period in Bashar's rule also brought the rise of another figure, Rami Makhlouf, Bashar's cousin. He is related to the Assad family through his mother, who was the sister of Anissa Makhlouf, Hafiz al-Assad's wife. So she's Bashar's aunt. Rami Makhlouf's personal wealth accumulated abroad was estimated to be in the excess of 10 billion in 2020. His father, Mohammed Makhlouf, played the role of the regime's financier, basically Hafiz's money man. As Bashar al-Assad became president, Makhlouf's son Rami inherited this business empire and became this new tycoon in Syria. He was the person who made sure that any economic opening would benefit and enrich the Assad family. Before the Syrian civil war started in early 2011, he was considered one of the wealthiest and most powerful men in Syria and controlled nearly 60% of the economy, including industries of real estate and telecommunication, aviation, the dairy industry, tourism, electricity, and oil trading. According to Syrian analysts, he is part of al-Assad's inner circle, and no foreign company could do business in Syria at the time without his consent and partnership. The last French ambassador to Syria had lunch with Rami once and described him as acting as, quote, the king of Syria, puffing cigars and saying, I'm in control and everything happens through me. Fast forward to our present day. The economy has completely collapsed ever since the uprising started in early 2011. It could be seen as an accumulation of the past decade. Syria's sanction-hit economy had always relied on Lebanon to sustain itself, but in the fall of 2019, Lebanon had its own crises, and it was an economic and political turmoil, which forced banks to control access to cash and prevent transfers abroad. Dagger explains, Lebanon has always served as this economic pressure valve, not only for the regime, but also for average Syrians. A lot of Syrians had their savings, their life savings, in Lebanese banks. One analyst told me that Syrians had $1 billion in deposits in Syria itself, versus $40 billion of Syrian deposits in Lebanon. And then what happens in Lebanon? The whole banking system crashes. There are protests in the streets of Lebanon. That outlet that Syrians had shuts down, and the situation becomes progressively worse in Syria. The value of the Syrian lira had also extremely diminished, and continues to. Trying to recover from this plummet of the Syrian economy, Bashar turned to capitalists that he had empowered 20 years prior, including his cousin, Rami Makhlouf. Bashar asked Rami for $230 million, specifically in back taxes. It was described essentially as being a shakedown. The world saw this as a huge falling out between Syria's richest man and its president, aka dictator, Bashar al-Assad. Other prominent businessmen, not just Rami, were also targeted, and they all quietly agreed to pay whatever the regime was asking for. The economy was in a dire state, and the regime urgently needed cash. So the government asked for money from the businessmen it had empowered in the first place, and most of them comply. But not Rami Makhlouf. <laughs> in June 2011, Makhlouf stated that he would, quote, quit the Syrian business scene. On May 1st, 2020, Makhlouf made an unprecedented public appeal to his cousin. He made this appeal on Facebook, saying that officials were seeking to seize his assets as he was pressured to hand over an excess of 130 billion, I think that's what all those zeros mean, <laughs> an excess of 130 billion liras due to tax evasion. Makhlouf, who was 
a part of uh, Bashar al-Assad's inner circle, said he would pay the president himself, but not the state. Two days later, he posted another video on Facebook where he mentioned that Syrian security forces arrested some of his employees. He said, How could they do this when I was their biggest supporter and their biggest servant during the war? However, speculations indicate that the Syrian first lady, Esma al-Assad, had been responsible for this whole plot. The reason being that, quote, many businessmen loyal to Esma competed with Makhlouf for control of diminishing resources. After collapse of the Syrian pound, along with sanctions, made the space in which they compete narrow and difficult. This is according to Dr. Muhannad al-Hajj Ali, a researcher at the Carnegie Middle East Center. In addition, the Syrian authorities might have targeted Makhlouf in order to find resources prior to the implementation of U.S. sanctions related to the Caesar Act. On May 17, 2020, Makhlouf posted another video on Facebook where he mentioned rising pressure on him to hand over profits or he might be arrested. On May 19, 2020, the Syrian government seized all assets belonging to Makhlouf. On the 21st, a Syrian court placed a temporary travel ban on Makhlouf. On June 25, 2020, the Syrian government terminated duty-free contracts in all ports and border crossings with companies affiliated with Makhlouf. This drama between Bashar and Rami resulted in talks of a rift in the regime's inner circle, and people were concerned that this would expose a rift in the Alawite community itself, which had supplied the bulk of the fighting forces for the regime. Because in these Facebook videos, Rami wasn't only appealing to his cousin, his patron, with whom he built a 20-year symbiotic relationship with, he was also appealing to the average members of their religious sect, the Alawites most of whom are nowhere near the wealth of the Assad family's inner circle. He was telling the Alawites that we had sacrificed everything for the regime and our sons were killed in order for the regime to remain in power. And instead of being rewarded for the fruits of this, the regime is going after an important figure who has been instrumental in supporting people through his business, aka Rami himself. And it wasn't necessarily untrue, but he wasn't helping people for free, obviously, and Rami had expected people to remain loyal to him despite all of this. Basically, the Assad family had finished devouring the Syrian state and its resources, and it had now started to devour each other. As of 2020, 80% of Syrians live in poverty, and 40% are unemployed. There is unrelenting inflation, and basic goods have doubled or tripled in price. Rice, flour, sugar, coffee, everything has become obscenely expensive, there's hardly any meat, and gas is priced in American dollars, which you could only imagine how high that goes. When my family and I talks to our family members that are still in Syria, we hear about the electricity being out for days and weeks, and then the water being out for the same amount of time, and the people are essentially being suffocated by their own government. People are questioned and tortured and kept in prisons for absolutely no reason, and the only way they can get out is by bribing the prisons. Thousands of dollars for no reason. It's just about greed, it's about power, it's about terrible people, these monsters. Just destroying this beautiful place. Syria is so beautiful. And I just, my heart breaks for the land and for the people. So... Although the Assad regime continues to present itself as the ultimate and only power in Syria, Bashad has actually been at his weakest point in the last two years. He is only still in his position because the Russians and Iranians want him to be there, and he's only able to maintain his role by playing off his two patrons against each other. 
Iran, and Russia. This is a regime that always derived its power from the army and from the security forces, but the army largely does not exist anymore. Yes, there are divisions that are trained by the Russians in an attempt to put this army back together, but even the loyalists who support Bashar al-Assad don't want to join the army anymore. They would rather leave the country. So the regime's only option left is to continue to rule by fear. This has had mixed results, especially when you look at the uprisings that have continued since 2011, however much they have dissipated. People put themselves on the streets, not hiding their identities, vocally and loudly opposing the regime and demanding for the removal of Bashar al-Assad. This behavior, as we've seen, is unacceptable by the regime, and it's led to the regime all but destroying its own country. Estimates of the total number of deaths in the Syrian civil war by opposition activist groups vary between 500,000 people and 600,000 people as of March of 2022. And I think it's really notable that Syrians are vocally expressing their outrage, and there's just a history there of so much trauma. In 2005, for example, my mother was telling me that a list of demands, so like, what's math? Six years after the first uprisings occurred in 2011. In 2005, a list of demands or corrections um, were written down, the things that people wanted to fix of the government. Free press, free expression. They wanted to make the government a democracy. And Bashar allowed them to list their demands and what they wanted to fix and hand it over to him to look at, essentially. In Arabic, this is called Ilan Dimashq. And it seemed like maybe an open conversation could happen. But then, everyone who signed this petition was looked up, hunted down, sent to jail, some for decades and some people that are still there, and others fled the country after they started collecting people. This Ilan Dimashq was the beginning of the end. It was the end of the few liberties that people thought would come when Bashar al-Assad took power. He named everyone who signed, everyone who supported the newspeople, the press, as terrorists. And I think in spite of that, six years later, there was still an uprising. It was an accumulated need to fight back. And so going back to that saying that Assad loyalists spray paint on the cities that Assad has demolished, Assad or we burn the country. It seems like both choices have come true. Bashar al-Assad has stayed in power, and he's also burned the country to the ground. And the more he stays in power, the worse life gets for Syrians. The country is destroyed, families are shattered, and many, many people have died. The cost is insurmountable. But a lot of Syrians don't see this fight as over. Their injustices and grievances remain the same, even after experiencing indescribable horrors over the past 12 years. Syrian people, like all people, they want dignity, they want justice, and they can no longer accept living in this inhumane system where your most basic rights as a human being depend on your proximity to power. Anyway, this is Shireen. Thank you for listening. I sincerely appreciate your time. And uh, I'll see ya. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress. 
30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.